This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Ladinsami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Serdorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Welcome to America's Roundtable. Good morning and welcome to America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. And this weekend, we are pleased to welcome a widely respected media leader and a brilliant author and scholar, Yaakov Katz. Yaakov Katz is an Israeli-American author and journalist, and between 2016 and 2023, Yaakov was editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post, where he continues to write a popular weekly column. He is the author of three books, Shadow Strike, Inside Israel's Secret Mission to Eliminate Syrian Nuclear Power, Weapon Wizards, How Israel Became a High-Tech Military Superpower, and Israel versus Iran, The Shadow War. His next book, tentatively titled Precision Strike, is scheduled for publication by St. Martin's Press in the spring of 2025. And originally from Chicago, Yaakov has a law degree from Bar Ilan University, and he is a senior fellow of the Jewish People Policy Institute. And this morning, Yaakov Katz joins us from Jerusalem. A good morning to you, Yaakov, and welcome once again to America's Roundtable. Good morning, Yaakov. Thank you very much. Great to be with both of you. Uh, Yaakov, uh, this Saturday marks six weeks from the barbaric Iran-backed Hamas's terrorist attack on Israel, in which terrorists brutally murdered 1,400 innocent civilians and kidnapped over 240 hostages that are still held captive in Gaza, and among them babies, children, and elderly. Israel launched the ground operation into Gaza on October 28 to rescue the hostages and to destroy terrorist groups Hamas military infrastructure, including 300 miles of underground tunnels. Uh, Yaakov, what can you tell us about the current realities on the ground in Gaza as the IDF forces entered Al-Shifa Hospital this past week? So Shifa Hospital is one of the big uh, focus points for the moment for the IDF as it continues to take more control of northern Gaza. Pretty much what we've seen in the last three weeks since Israel has been operating on the ground inside Gaza with ground forces is that its focus has been just on the northern Gaza, which includes Gaza City, but does not include the south, the southern part of the Gaza Strip. Al-Shifa Hospital was like the last big holdout, the last stronghold of Hamas. Israel has been in there already for a number of days. They've discovered weapons in the MRI room, in the intensive care unit. They've discovered already a number of tunnel shafts. But we still haven't seen evidence of the extensive tunnel network that Israel claimed to know about that's directly beneath Shifa Hospital. We'll have to wait to see as they explore some of those tunnels. As you both know, it's not you don't just send troops inside a tunnel. It could be booby trapped. It could capsize on you. So first you want to send your robots in there. You have to be very careful in this environment. This urban warfare with Hamas is extremely tricky and complicated. And therefore, the IDF is going slowly as it moves through these very treacherous terrain. The second I would say it's probably going to be done with Shifa, a few days now, 
we'll probably start to see a greater invasion of sorts or a greater offensive would be the better word into southern Gaza Strip. We have to keep in mind that in the south of Gaza, there's about three Hamas brigades that are still intact. There are that that means there's thousands of Hamas terrorists who are there. The Hamas leadership is there. Likely the Israeli hostages are there. And if Israel wants to be able to achieve its goals, the two priorities being toppling Hamas's governance over the Gaza Strip and retrieving the hostages, it has no choice but to go into Gaza, to the southern part of Gaza. And that will be complicated because as Israel has operated in the north, they're all now in the south. They've had time to uh, bolster defenses, prepare booby traps, and they have nowhere to go now. Once there's nothing left in the north, they would ha- they would have to stay in the south and fight, which means we're going to probably see some serious resistance and a lot of fighting in the days and weeks to come. Yaakov, in your recent piece, Defining Victory Will Determine the Future of the Gaza War, and we encourage our listeners to truly uh, get on your websites and uh, check this article out. And you were talking about what transpired in January 2009, and I quote from your piece, the direction was clear. Olmert, the prime minister at the time, was nearing the end of his term, and Israel was less than a month away from the elections that would bring Benjamin Netanyahu back to power. What was happening in the U.S. was possibly even more important, George W. Bush was days away from leaving the Oval Office to be replaced by Barack Obama. The Americans made clear that they wanted the operation wrapped up before Inauguration Day on January of that year. In fact, uh, we also realize in America that there are pressures building within the Biden administration to push for the dangerous ceasefire with Hamas and with certain U.S. legislators having wobbly legs on their stance and standing firm with Israel due to calls that they're getting, daily calls from constituents influenced by social media and biased U.S. media. And there is also a presidential election and congressional races less than a year away. Will Israel be able to chart a different course than 2009 and get the job done to eliminate Hamas and be victorious, as that once General Gallant mentioned in 2009? Look, it's a very good question, and we have to hope so, because this is different, right? What happened in 2009 was obviously, looking back now, we should have gone all the way. We should have taken out Hamas, and then that would have spared us the horrific massacre that took place on uh, October 7th. I've been down south a number of times in the last few weeks, have been to some of those uh, communities and, and kibbutzes where the, the slaughtering took place. And it's it's just horrific. It's heart-wrenching. Every, every home you walk past is like its own private holocaust of what happened inside this home to this family. So when we caved in the past, there were obviously many different interests, and no one ever thought that what happened on October 7th would happen. So I, I, we can't necessarily blame specific people at the moment, but it was a faulty policy. And Israel's policy of containment with Hamas and thinking that it can just defend ourselves with uh, Iron Dome and big walls and barriers and, and keeping Gaza in Gaza, well, that blew up in our faces and shattered on that October 7th. And therefore, what we have to do is get the mission done. And the mission needs to be three. It needs to be the degrading of Hamas's capabilities. I say degrading specifically, not destruction, not elimination, because you can't destroy and you can't eliminate. That sounds nice, but in practical terms, it's not real, right? You can destroy as much as you can and you can eliminate as much as you can, but something will be left. 
So we need to degrade their capabilities to the minimum. We need to remove them from a position of power. They can no longer be the governing entity over the Gaza Strip. They have to be sidelined, marginalized, uh, and maligned. And then the third obviously has to be the hostages. We have to find we, the, the, the social contract between a government and its people has been broken. And important in the hostages, just so people understand and your listeners understand, it'd be one thing if they were just soldiers, right? But the fact that you have civilians, and as Natasha said in the beginning, babies and children, right, that, 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 that creates a whole different reality that has to be dealt with because you, you can't just ignore that. You can't just say, well, that's the price. That's the collateral damage. No, you could say that maybe about soldiers, and I don't want to sound callous, but maybe about soldiers, but not in this case. So to the question of the Americans, there's pressure. We see that Israel's making decisions to allow in fuel trucks. We see that Israel's allowing it, you know, this humanitarian corridor and supplies. We see that Israel's moving slowly, right? For example, Shifa Hospital waited weeks before it went in trying to get every single last person, as many as it could, out. All of that is aimed at ensuring that there's international legitimacy, because the moment we lose that international legitimacy, the war could potentially be over. And we need the international legitimacy, just so our people understand. You can say, why do I care? Well, you know, if you see behind me, you see the Apache helicopter, you see the F-35, just models of them. Right. That's those are the mainstays of Israel's air force for those to continue to fly. We need the bunker buster missiles. We need spare parts. And if America doesn't like us for some reason and doesn't give us those spare parts, those aircraft don't fly. Hmm. So we need to we need to balance this. And I think that today, for the large part, most people understand. Most people are sympathetic. They realize that this is a new reality. But we're you know, we're we're up against a, a clock that's ticking and we have to be cognizant of that. Right, Yaakov. In September of 1972, 11 Israeli athletes had been murdered on the sidelines of the Olympic Games in Munich by Black September, a notorious Palestinian terrorist group. A few days later, Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir approved what became known as Operation Wrath of God, a targeted assassination campaign to hunt down every terrorist involved in the attack and its planning. And in your piece, which is titled, Even After the War in Gaza, Israel will have to hunt down Hamas's leaders, which was released in the Newsweek. No matter how much time it took and how far away the Mossad needed to travel, Israel would not let the murders of Jews off the hook. Uh, Yaakov, uh, can you describe for us the wrath of God, an extensive campaign that reportedly continued for more than a decade, which, as you say, illustrated an important ethos at the time in Israel? And how important are countries and governments internationally? Because having a thought of having individuals who are capable of these atrocities live around us is inconceivable. Yeah, I mean, look, the issue of eliminating Hamas is not just in the Gaza Strip. We know that Hamas has leaders who live in other places around the world, for example, Doha and Qatar and Lebanon. Uh, other Hamas officials might be escaping Gaza somehow and, and fleeing to other countries. We have to eliminate them all. And what Golda Meir, who was Israel's prime minister back in 1972 and then later in 1973 during the Yom Kippur War, but after the Munich massacres, it became known and made that dramatic decision to hunt these people down. It wasn't just to hunt them down in, in Arab countries. It was to go into Western Europe, into France and Italy and, and other countries, countries with which Israel has diplomatic relations and, to, and no one was immune. And I think that there's there's importance in that message getting out now. 
which is one of the reasons I wrote that piece, but also Israelis are talking about this. Israeli government officials are saying it might take years for us to get to each and la- each last one of them, but we will have to because this is this is a monster of a caliber that we did not imagine. You know, you you hear the stories of what they did, the the barbaric and the barbarism and the 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 just the slaughtering and the massacre and the rape and the burning of people alive, cutting off limbs and of, of parents in front of children and vice versa. You know, you, part of you wants to say these are monsters, these are animals, but they're not. They're human beings. Mm. They're human beings who decided to act like animals. Mm. And 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 we we have to. They have to be eradicated, and they have to be eradicated no matter where they are in the world. And it, and this is important for two reasons. One is because, well, three actually. One is because they have to pay a price for what they did. Two is because they have to be prevented from doing it ever again. And the third reason, which is just as important, is the world needs to see that you don't do things like this to Israel. And if you do, you pay a price. Mm. Mm. Indeed. Yaakov, America's mainstream media groups, in light of the fact that just Israel just started its ground campaign, its ground operations in Gaza, are now pushing the narrative of a two-state solution. And some even are pushing for the immediate implementation of this policy by engaging elected officials. And we are aware of that long-term conflicts cannot be patched up overnight. Our engagement uh, in the Balkans over the past three decades, and Natasha was born in the former Yugoslavia and lived through the Balkan conflicts, she has communicated how the dangers of foreign powers dictating timetables and defining territories and sovereignty lines are very dangerous. And in The Hill, your recent piece titled, A Plan for How to End the War in Gaza, I quote your statement or your writing. After what happened on October 7, the idea that Israel will one day withdraw from territory like the Jordan Valley and outsource its security is impossible to contemplate for for at least the next two generations. One senior Israeli military officer told us, this is a hard lesson from the Hamas attacks. Israel will not be able to give up security presence along its borders in the decades to come and will not be able to hide behind fences and missile defense systems like Iron Dome, which is effective at saving lives, but also gave Israel a false feeling of safety as a monstrous threat grew just over the border, unquote. Yaakov, in light of October 7, when 1,400 people, including infants and young children, were brutally tortured and some beheaded, how likely is the notion of a two-state solution whereby Israel is placed in the middle geographically and bordering two territories with perhaps potential hostile forces targeting the Jewish state again? Maybe what gives me a little credibility to talk about this is I've been a long proponent of the two-state solution for many years. I believe that Israel, that's the the best solution that's on the table that exists and that Israel needed to do more to enable um, the option of ever being implemented. Of course, most of my criticism is always to the Palestinian Authority for its incitements in its education system, for its pay to slay policy of paying terrorists who murder Jews and the corruption and the governance. But I also felt that Israel needed to do more. And now when I when I see the, the hard lesson of October 7th, and I think it's not just for me, but it's for everyone, it needs to be an understanding that Israel can never outsource its security. It cannot relinquish territory mm. that will then be used to create a terrorist entity on our borders. And that is something that 
you know, I think many Israelis now realize, but I'm not sure yet that people in America completely understand. We hear the Biden officials continue to talk regularly about the need to preserve the option and the window for a two state solution. That's like they're talking back in the 1990s. We are now in 2023 in a post October 7th reality. And in a post October 7th reality, no Israeli will ever agree to doing something like that. Now, by the way, maybe for all we know, new leadership will come up somewhere in the Palestinian Authority. We'll have an Anwar Sadat moment, like what happened after the Yom Kippur War when Egypt came to us. And, you know, he made that historic visit to Israel in 1977. And that led to the Camp David Accords and to 40, almost 50 years of peace between Israel and Egypt, right? Mm. Is that possible today? No, not with the leadership that's in Ramallah, definitely not with the leadership that's in Gaza. And therefore, instead, what we need to talk about, and this is what we wrote in that piece, I wrote it together with my colleague, Khaled Abu Tuama, a Palestinian affairs reporter. What we looked at was, okay, what are the steps that Israel needs to do? What are the steps that the, that, that the Palestinians need to do? But there's also a step that the Americans need to do. And that is to realize that this, this the two-state solution, like we used to think about, is no longer relevant. What's relevant today, we could have diplomatic prospects, we could have a process, we could work together. But Israel's not withdrawing from territory mm-hmm. because the moment we withdraw from territory, we get monsters like Hamas on our borders. And Israel today can never, ever, ever allow that to happen. I just want to say one last thing on that. What happened on October 7th was the murder of the most Jews in one single day since the Holocaust. Israel was created as a country that was meant to prevent the Holocaust from ever happening. So to some extent, the raison d'etre of Israel failed. Israel has to ensure that that will never happen again. Now, that, will, that, that, that means that we're, we're going to change as a country. The country that we were on October 6th is not the country that we are today. And what that means is, is, is changing our policy when it comes to land, when it comes to territory, when it comes to making these types of deals, building high fences and pretending they make good neighbors. But it also has to do with the type of military strength we will need to have, the size of the army that we will need to maintain, the way we will need to conduct our, our the, and, and engage the threats, with, not, not wait for them to grow, take them out when they are small. This is going to be a lot more preemptive action than what we've seen in the past. This is going to change the way we do national security in this country. And I, I hope we got one hell of a wake-up call on October 7th. I hope that it doesn't just disappear, that we understand that we have to be different today. Right, Yaakov, in that piece that we just talked about, which is titled A Plan for How to End the War in Gaza, you lay down this plan, what needs to be done by Israel and by the Palestinian Authority in order to create an end mechanism to the war, as well as advance the diplomatic process when the war is over. And you also pointed out an important leverage in order to create a better future for Israelis and Palestinians. And that is that Palestinians are almost entirely dependent on American and European financial aid. Uh, Yaakov, how do we make sure that we can rely on Americans and Europeans to stop any aid going to Palestinian Authority until they reform themselves, until they get rid of corruption, until they have fair and free elections and put other requirements that are needed for them to be reformed and be able to govern? Look, the the Americans and the Europeans need to be tough and they need to recognize what we just spoke about before. Reality today is different. If they understand today, you know, one of the things that I think 
people have yet to completely understand. I now understand. I think most Israelis understand. I think you definitely, and the two of you understand. We are in a battle between good and evil. Yeah. There are good forces and there are dark forces. And, you know, until now, we've said always it's complicated. We have to manage. We have to maneuver. We have to balance. No. Today, we have to be very clear and articulate this new policy very clearly. We will not tolerate any more complicated or complexity. It's clear what needs to happen. And America and Europe need to stand up and say to the Palestinians, if you don't shape up, you will ship out. Right. Mm -hmm. And you have to change your governance. You have to create new leadership. You have to stop incitement in your schools. You have to stop paying terrorists. You have to make these reforms. And if you don't, we will not give you one single cent. Now, Israel also has to take steps, right? Israel, I think when you listen to the prime minister, for example, Prime Minister Netanyahu, he's asked about what will take, what entity will replace Israel in Gaza. He doesn't have a plan. He talks about a new civilian authority, not the Palestinian authority. I don't see anyone lining up to take over the Gaza Strip. Right. So what what we need to do also is Israel has to engage with the Palestinian Authority, but only if the Palestinian Authority reforms itself and does what I just listed. If they don't, then they need to get out of the way. But that has to we need our American and European friends to help make that possible, because if they if, if they start to connect conditions to that paycheck, they can help make the reality and the security in this region so much better. Yaakov, in our discussions and debates that we're seeing on Capitol Hill and other centers around the world, other capitals, the elephant in the room, Iran, is not mentioned often. Now, we talk about Hamas, we talk about Hezbollah, Houthis, we talk about some of the militia groups in Syria. And in 2019, U.S. military intelligence estimated the number of Hezbollah rockets and missiles had grown up to 150,000 in total. And it and apparently is probably more now. And all of this is basi basically being fueled by Iran. And American forces deployed in Iraq and Syria have been attacked 55 times over the past month, causing minor injuries to dozens of, of U.S. troops, as the Pentagon has mentioned. Yaakov, are we to witness a widening of this conflict? And is America's response, which some have stated as just pinprick strikes, Will that deter Iran from fueling a regional war? The issue of Iran is, is one of the more troubling parts of this conflict. And the reason is because what's happening until now, Iran has been getting immunity. Mm. Right. Let's also understand Israel is face is fighting a war against Iranian proxies. Hamas is a proxy in the Gaza Strip and Hezbollah with daily clashes along the border in the north. That is an Iranian proxy. So you have an octopus with tentacles. And you keep on trying to cut off one of the tentacles, but you're leaving the octopus alive. Mm. Iran needs to be confronted. The best way to do that, America has built up significant military assets in this region. The Ford Carrier Strike Group, the Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group, the USS Florida nuclear-powered submarine that's here. America needs to go to the Iranians, in my opinion, and say to them, you have 24 hours to pull back Hezbollah from the border with Israel, to get Hamas to release the hostages, and to dismantle your nuclear program. Hmm. And if you don't do all three of those in 24 hours, we're not going to destroy Hezbollah, and we're not going to destroy Hamas. We're going to destroy you. That threat 
could have such significance. It gives President Biden an opportunity today to change world history, Hmm. to literally change world history. And I wish he would do it. Hmm. I know he won't, but I wish he would. (laughs) Because what we're doing also, we're setting ourselves up Hmm. that bad actors learn lessons from this. They see what happens. They say, we can get away with it too. Mm -hmm. If the Iranians can do this, we can get, we didn't even talk about Yemen, where another Iranian proxy, the Houthis are firing missiles towards Israel, right? The Iranians need to pay a price. They are the greatest generator of chaos, violence, and terrorism in the entire world. And for now, they walk around with immunity. And that is terrible. Hmm. Yeah. We witnessed uh, strong uh, U.S. administrations, American administrations with uh, Reagan that promoted peace through strength, with recently uh, Trump promoting peace through strength. U.S. as a strong leader in the world, uh, deterring conflict, deterring wars. What, as you said, you don't think that uh, that Biden is going to send this message to Iran. Within 24 hours, you have to uh, stop uh, Hamas, Hezbollah, Houthis from attacking Israel. Why do you think he's not uh, going to send that message? message uh, to Iran or what needs to happen in order for the U.S. administration to send this resolute message to Iran? In your in Joel's question just before, he asked about the uh, he mentioned how America is being attacked in Syria and Iraq Mm -hmm. and by by Iranian militias. And how is America retaliating? By attacking the Iranian militias, not Iran. Now, we know that these are Iranian militias. We know that they are that they are being sponsored, funded, supplied and directed by Iran. But again, we're giving the Iranians immunity. I think that there is a false hope in the West that some deal can be made with the Iranians. Somehow the Iranians can 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 get along with all of us. Unfortunately, what these people are missing is history and history, decades of history since the Islamic Revolution of 1979, 45 years almost, have taught us that the Iranians are not a rational actor. They are not an, a side to diplomatic deals, and they only understand strength. And sadly, I, it's painful to say it, but it's the truth. The language in this region in the Middle East is only one of strength. Mm-hmm. That is one that people understand. And that is how you have to speak. And that is why I, I would hope that they would do it. What I mentioned before with the 24-hour ultimatum, you know what, make it 48 hours if you want. But the the reason it won't happen is because there still is a false hope that we we you know and i think we all we all fail in the same way we look at people and we say hold on they look like us they got two arms two legs they walk like us they speak like us they talk you know they they eat like us they're like us right but they're not they're not their values are not like ours hmm. they don't mind they sanctify death we sanctify life and they sanctify terrorism and we sanctify safety and therefore and security and therefore we have to stop trying to pretend as if we can engage with people like the Iranians in the same way that we engage you and I or within our own countries. It's not like that. Right. And that's the hard reality. Mm. Right. Yaakov, uh, in fact, uh, we are witnessing today in the West on the European continent, in the United Kingdom, and the United States, the brazen manifestation of anti-Semitism on the streets, on, on college campuses, like we've never seen before. Certainly our generation, for you and for us, you know, we're certainly witnessing something that 
you know, our great grandparents noticed uh, years ago, decades ago. And the ADL states that anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. are up over 300 percent since the start of the Gaza war. And in fact, uh, there were 832 incidents between October 7 and November 7, an average of 28 a day. And we're also finding out that Jewish students in high schools are not only experiencing anti-Semitism, one high school teacher in Texas berated a Jewish student publicly. And we also saw this uh, on some of our news clips in Dagestan, where a mob just charged right into an airport. No security whatsoever. And they were in search of Jewish passengers arriving from Israel. And we also know about what's happening on the college campuses today, which is not just only disheartening, it's very upsetting. Yaakov, what is your message to our fellow Americans as they witness this anti-Semitism surge within our society? And secondly, what would you communicate to Jewish American families who today are now living in fear here in the United States in the year 2023? The manifestation or the explosion, I would call it, of anti-Semitism since the war in Gaza really shows us two important things, or we should be learning from it two important lessons. The first is that unfortunately, 80 years after the Holocaust, we're still not safe. Jews, no matter where they live, whether it's in the US, whether it's in London, in the UK, whether it's in France, Jews are just not safe. And there are, there are enemies and there are people who are out to murder and to demonize and to malign Jews all over the world. For unfortunately, we don't have enough friends like the two of you who are steadfast, strong friends to the state of Israel and to the Jewish people. And I thank you for that and all the hard work that the two of you have done over the years. And I've known you for 10 years now and, uh, and how many times you've come here and, and the love and support you bring to the state of Israel and to the Jewish people. But we don't have enough. And that's the hard truth. And, and I think that Jews around the world need to realize today that they, they, they will have to make hard decisions. A, where they continue to live. B, how do they continue to live and how they conduct security. And unfortunately, I fear that this is going to lead to a decline in Jewish identity. Because if I know that if I walk around with a kippah or I walk around with a Star of David chain or I put a mezuzah on the doorstep, on the, on the doorpost of my house, someone could come attack me, then I might want to hide being Jewish. What, we're going back to, to the days when Jews would have to hide who they are? That's crazy. But the second lesson, I think, is that we as the Jewish people, and we're about 15, 20 million around the world, we have to realize we have to stand together, that no matter where we are, whether we're in Israel and we're fighting, you know, my daughter is now just last week became an IDF officer and mm. is uh, serving down south. I have three nephews who are inside Gaza as we speak. I have a brother who's deployed up north, uh, been fighting against Hezbollah along the border for the last six weeks. We are we are fighting here on our borders and Jews around the world are fighting to be free Jews in their cities and in their countries. And we are in one fight. It's, it might look different, but it's one fight. Because when Hamas came into our cities, into our homes on October 7th, they weren't looking to, because of the land or because of territory, or they wanted to be free. They wanted to murder people because they're Jewish. That's what this was about. Mm. 
And therefore, today, we, the Jewish people, have to recognize that our unity will give us strength, and we have to stand together to defeat the evil, no matter where it manifests itself, whether it's Hamas in Gaza, on a college campus like Columbia University, where people chant intifada, or where people are, are in, in streets of London are walking around saying free, you know, P Palestine will be free from the river to the sea. This is a challenge that we all face no matter where we are in the world today. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. Yaakov Katz, we thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable. And we would just encourage our listeners to seek out Yaakov Katz's books. Uh, I would like to just mention that again, Shadow Strike Inside Israel's Secret Mission to Eliminate Syrian Nuclear Power, Weapon Wizards, How Israel Became a High-Tech Military Superpower, and Israel versus Iran, The Shadow War. And keep an eye on for his new book coming up in spring of 2025 precision strike and Yaakov we truly thank you for your leadership and for clearly articulating all that the people of Israel are experiencing today and also challenging us here in America of what we can do to shore up greater support for the Jewish state the people of Israel and for our fellow Americans who are Jewish Americans here on our continent here so we thank you so much for your leadership and uh, we we'll certainly look forward to keeping in touch with you and we'll keep your daughter in our prayers as well. Right, we're keeping your daughter in, in our prayers. Thank you so much, and we stand with Israel, Yaakov. Thank you, Natasha, and thank you, Joel. Thank you for everything. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Jolan Insami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Serdorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. 